0: Chapter 1 of A Fatal Message. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Paul Hampton. A Fatal Message by Nicholas Carter. Chapter 1 A Suspicious Wire. Nick Carter leaned nearer to the wall and listened to what the two men were discussing. The wall was that of a booth in the café of the Shelby House. It was a partition, of match-sheathing only, through which ordinary conversation in the adjoining booth could be easily overheard, and both men in this case spoke above an ordinary tone. Obviously, therefore, they were discussing nothing of a private nature, or anything thought to be of much importance or serious significance. It meant no more to them, in fact, than it would have meant to most men, to all save one in a million. That one in a million was seated alone in the next booth, Nick Carter. The two men were strangers to the detective. They had entered when he was near the end of his lunch, and while waiting for their orders to be served, they engaged in the conversation which, though heard only by chance, soon seriously impressed the detective. "'You were a little later than usual this noon, Belden,' said one. "'Yes, a few minutes, Joe, but I thought you would wait for me. "'My ticker got busy just as I was about to leave. "'I remained to take the dispatch, Gordon, "'and it proved to be quite a long one. "'Something important?' "'Not very. Only political views for the local paper.' "'Belden evidently is a telegraph operator,' thought Nick. "'Anything warm by wire this morning?' "'Questioned Gordon. "'No, nothing,' said Belden. "'Then he abruptly added, "'There was a singular message, however, "'and an unusual circumstance in connection with it. "'How so, Arthur?' "'The dispatch was addressed to John Dalton, "'and we were instructed to hold it till called for,' Belden explained. "'I looked in the local directory, "'but it contained no John Dalton. "'I inferred that he was a traveling man "'or a visitor in town.' whose address was not known by the sender. Naturally. Strange to say, however, he showed up in about five minutes and asked if we had a dispatch for him. Why is there anything strange in that? He evidently was expecting it. It was strange that he came in so quickly, almost while I was receiving the message. That, too, was singular. The message? Yes. Why so? As I remembered, Joe, it read... DUST FLYING, S.D. ON WAY, WHERE Eagle, said Belden. It was signed with only a single name, Martin. It was then that Nick Carter pricked up his ears and leaned nearer to the wall to hear what the two men were saying. By Jove, that was a bit singular, remarked Gordon. I thought so. DUST FLYING, eh? Gordon laughed. The dispatch must have come from a windy city. It came from Philadelphia." "'I'm wrong, then. Not even dust flies in Philadelphia. Did Dalton send an answer?' "'Not that I know of. Certainly not from our office.' "'Or volunteer any explanation?' "'No, it was probably a code message, or had some secret significance.' He took the dispatch and departed. "'A stranger to you, eh?' "'Total stranger. I don't imagine the message amounted to anything.' "'It appeared a bit odd, however, and... "'Ah, here's our grub,' Belden broke off abruptly. "'The martini is mine, waiter. "'Here's luck, Joe.' "'It was obvious to Nick "'that the discussion of the telegram was ended. "'He immediately arose and departed. "'He sauntered into the hotel office, "'then out through the adjoining corridor, "'which just then was deserted, "'of which he took advantage. "'He quickly adjusted a simple disguise "'with which he was provided,' and then he passed out of a side door leading to the street. Nick was watching the cafe when the two men emerged. He followed them until Gordon parted from his companion and entered a large hardware store, where he evidently was employed. Arthur Belden walked on leisurely alone, and Nick judged that he was heading for the main office of the Western Union Company, whose sign projected from a building some 50 yards away. The detective walked more rapidly and quickly overtook him. How are you, Belden? He said, slipping his hand through the young man's arm. Don't appear surprised. Pretend that you know me. I have something to say to you. Belden was quick witted, and he immediately nodded and smiled. I will explain presently, Nick continued. We'll wait until we are under cover. It's barely possible that we are observed. You work in the telegraph office, don't you? Yes, I'm assistant manager. Got a private office? Yes, I receive and send most of the important dispatches. Good enough. I'm going with you to your office. Carry yourself as if it was nothing unusual. Fine day overhead, isn't it? Yes, great, laughed Belden, gazing up. This way. We'll cross here. Nick accompanied him across the street into the building. Not until they were seated in his private office, however, did the detective refer to the matter actuating him. "'I was in the adjoining booth while you and your friend Gordon "'were discussing a telegram received here this morning,' Nick then explained. "'I wish to talk with you about it.' "'For what reason?' questioned Belden, more sharply regarding him. "'Have you any authority in the matter?' "'Yes.' "'How so? Who are you?' "'Nick saw plainly that the young man was trustworthy. "'He smiled agreeably, yet said, quite impressively, "'This is strictly between us, Belden.' so be sure you don't betray my confidence under any circumstances. I'm in Shelby on very important business. Any indiscretion on your part might prove very costly. You read your local newspaper and must know me by name at least. I am the New York detective, Nick Carter. Belden's frank face underwent a decided change. He quickly extended his hand, saying earnestly, By gracious, I ought to have guessed it. "'Know you by name? Well, I should say so. I'm mighty glad to meet you too, Mr. Carter, and to be of any service. The local paper has, indeed, had a good deal to say about you and your mission here, as well as about your running down Carl Glidden's murderer, Jim Reardon.' "'Yes, by Jove, I ought to have guessed it.' Belden referred to recent events the secret employment of Nick and his assistants to run down the perpetrators of a long series of crimes on the Esno Railway, his investigation of the murder of the night operator in one of the block signal towers, resulting in the detection and death of the culprit, James Reardon, and the arrest of several of his associates suspected of being identified with the railway outlaws, though their guilt could not then be proved. All had occurred during the ten days that Nick Carter, Chick, and Patsy had been in Shelby, and all were still vividly fresh in the public mind. Nick smiled faintly at Belden's enthusiastic remarks. "'We still have much to accomplish here,' he replied, referring to himself and his assistants. "'We got James Reardon all right, and cleaned up that signal-tower mystery, which is what we first undertook to do. That did not clinch our suspicions against some of his associates, however, as I hoped it would do. I refer to Jake Hanlon, Link McGee, and Dick Bryan, "'who have succeeded in wriggling from under the wheels of justice.' "'But you expect to get them later?' "'I expect to, yes,' said Nick. "'But my identity in Mission and Shelby now are generally known. "'That has put the railway bandits on their guard, "'which makes our work more difficult. "'But that's neither here nor there, Mr. Belton, "'and I am wasting time. "'I wish to see a copy of that telegram you were discussing with Gordon "'and to ask you a few questions about it.' "'Go ahead.' ''Go as far as you like, Mr. Carter. I'll never mention a word of it,'' Belden earnestly assured him. ''Good for you,'' Nick replied. ''About what time was the telegram received?'' ''Precisely ten o'clock.'' And Dalton called for it almost immediately. ''Within three or four minutes.'' ''That indicates he was expecting it at just that time,'' said Nick. ''If I'm right, and I think I am, he was acting under plans previously laid with the sender, Martin.'' or he was otherwise informed just when the message would be sent. Do you recall ever having received another dispatch from Philadelphia, signed Martin? I do not, said Balden, shaking his head. What type of man is Dalton? Describe him. He is a well-built man, about forty years old, quite dark, and he wears a full beard. He was clad in a plaid business suit. The beard might have been a disguise. I think I would have detected it. You do not detect mine, smiled Nick. He may be equally skillful. There may be something in that, Belden admitted, laughing. At all events, Mr. Carter, the man was a total stranger to me. But why do you regard the message so suspiciously? Have you a copy of it? Yes, certainly. Let me see it. Belden stepped into the outer office, returning presently with a spindle on which were copies of all the telegrams received that day. He began to remove them, seeking the one in question. And Nick said while waiting, "'By the way, Belden, "'have you received any other telegrams "'from Philadelphia this morning, or within a day or two? "'Yes, there was one this morning. "'Let me see that also. "'Was it received before the other, or later? "'About an hour earlier. "'Let me see both of them.' "'Here's the first one,' said Belden. "'It was received at nine o'clock. "'See for yourself, Mr. Carter.' Nick took the telegram and read it. Gus DeWitt, Ready House, Shelby. Ten will hit me. Quickest route. A. Moniker. It was a message that would have signified very little to most men. It might have been an ordinary business communication, a wire concerning the price and quantity of desired merchandise and the direction for shipping it. Nick Carter's strong, clean-cut face, however, took on a more intent expression. "'By Jove, I am right,' he said. "'It's a hundred to one that this was sent to notify Dalton "'just when to call for the message.' "'Why do you think so?' Belden inquired, "'leaning nearer to read the telegram. "'For three reasons,' said Nick. "'First, the signature, A. Moniker. "'What about it? It evidently is a man's name. "'I see nothing remarkable in that.' "'There is, nevertheless,' Nick replied. "'Moniker, Belden, is a slang term for a nickname.' undoubtedly in this case it refers to a fictitious name or an alias it means i think that an alias would be used in the message afterwards sent signed martin and addressed to john dalton presumably an alias of which dalton already was informed by gracious carter you may be right ten will hit me told dalton at just what time he must expect the message he was in effect directed to call for it at that hour Obviously, too, the business is secret and important, as well as off-color, or such a circumspect method of communication would not be necessary. Surely not, Belden agreed. But what do you make of the last, quickest route? By wire, Belden, of course, said Nick. A telegram is the quickest means of communication when the telephone cannot be wisely and conveniently used. That's right, too, Belden readily admitted. By Jove, you have a long head, Mr. Carter. Training enables one to detect such points as these, Nick replied. Do you know Gus DeWitt, to whom this message is addressed? I do not. It was sent to the ready house. Yes, it may have been signed for by the clerk, or delivered to DeWitt himself. The boy who took it there could tell us, but he is out just now. You can telephone to the ready house and find out. Not by long chalk, Nick quickly objected. I don't want my interest in this matter suspected. Have you found the other message? Yes, here it is. Belden tendered the yellow paper on which the copied message was written. End of chapter one. Read by Paul Hampton. Chapter two of A Fatal Message. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Fatal Message by Nicholas Carter Chapter 2. The Intercepted Letter Nick Carter read more carefully the telegram discussed in the hotel café, and which had so seriously aroused his suspicions. John Dalton, Shelby, dust flying s d on way where eagle martin belden watched the detective for a moment then asked what do you make of it dust flying seems to have no definite significance on the contrary belden it is very significant to me said nick you have heard it said no doubt that some men have dust on their clothes others in them dust you mean money exactly There is money moving in some way, Belden, or about to be moved, of which felonious advantage is going to be taken. In other words, Belden, crooks are out to get the money. Ah, I see, Belden exclaimed with eyes lighting. You suspect that a crime is being framed up. Precisely. I feel reasonably sure of it, in fact. For any other reason? Yes. Notice the last phrase in the message. Where, eagle? said Belden, reading it. What the deuce can you make of that? Is one of them to wear an eagle or some such insignia? Not at all, said Nick. It's a warning. A warning? Surely. Observe the spelling of wear. The word does not refer to something to be worn, or it would be properly spelled. It is an abbreviation of the word beware. In reality, Belden, the phrase means "'Beware eagle.' "'But how do you interpret that?' questioned Belden perplexedly. "'Why is Dalton to beware of an eagle? "'I can't see any sense to that.' "'Nick laughed a bit grimly. "'I can,' he said tersely. "'Crooks have favoured me "'with all sorts of names and epithets. "'I am the eagle referred to, Belden, "'as sure as you're a foot high.' "'Ah, I see the point. "'This man, Martin, the sender of the message,' Has warned Dalton to beware of me, Nick added. It was that phrase which first led me to suspect the character of the entire message. It is generally known now that I am here in the service of the SO Railway. This message convinces me, therefore, that another of the railway crimes is about to be attempted. It's up to me to head it off, if possible, or at least to get the outlaws. By Jove, you are a wonderful man, Mr. Carter said Belden, with much enthusiasm. There's no denying that you probably have interpreted both messages correctly. I think so, said Nick modestly. But how can you head off the anticipated crime, or succeed in getting the outlaws? That's another part of the story, Nick replied, smiling. One of them is evidently on the way here. Someone whose initials are S.D., added Belden, glancing at the message if you can identify him and find gus dewitt i shall certainly do the latter nick interposed but you are wrong in regard to the other how so s d does not in all probability refer to a man a woman no to what then to a special delivery letter said nick confidently oh by thunder belden exclaimed that must be right too You have nailed every point in both of these messages. And the next step, Belden, is to nail the special delivery letter, Nick declared. It presumably is coming from Philadelphia, and most likely sent by this man, Martin. Do you know whether a mail from Philadelphia has arrived here since ten this morning? There has not, said Belden promptly. I know all about the mails. One is due here from Philadelphia at two o'clock. Very good. Let me use your telephone to talk with one of my assistants. I want him to meet me at the post office. Certainly. Go as far as you like. In the meantime, Belden, kindly make me a copy of each of these messages, Nick added, turning to the telephone. I will then be off to intercept that special delivery letter. I may yet succeed, I think, in putting something over on Martin, Dalton, and DeWitt. Belden hastened to comply. Nick called up the Shelby house in the meantime and quickly got in communication with Chick Carter and Patsy Garvin, his two assistants, both of whom he directed to meet him in disguise at the local post office. Then, having again cautioned Belden to absolute secrecy, Nick hastened away to keep the appointment. It was half past one when he entered the post office where he found Chick and Patsy awaiting him. Without delaying to explain the situation, he at once led the way to the private office of the postmaster, Adam Holden, who readily gave him an interview. Nick then made himself known, introducing Chick and Patsy, after which he exhibited the two telegrams, confiding his suspicions to Holden and stating what he required of him. But that is decidedly against the law, Mr. Carter, the intercepting and opening of another person's letter, Holden forcibly objected. I don't see how I can consent to let you do so. It is a very serious offense. Not nearly as serious as the circumstances, Nick forcibly argued. When dealing with offenders against the law, with a gang of criminals engaged in we know not what, nor have other means of learning, an unlawful step in order to foil them and serve the law may very properly be taken. Possibly. I do not feel, nevertheless, that I can permit. Now, Holden, you wait one moment, Nick interrupted. It is absolutely necessary that I shall see that letter. I will assume all the responsibility. But, or, if you prefer, Nick cut in impressively, I will send Chick to Judge Barkley of the local court and get from him a special order to open the letter. He is corporation counsel for the SO Railway Company and will have a very keen appreciation of the circumstances. "'Bear in mind, too, that the letter is not to be held up permanently. "'It will be delayed only a very few minutes, and the recipient will be none the wiser. "'I can reopen and reseal the letter without his even suspecting it.' "'Very well,' Holden said reluctantly. "'You get an order from the court, Mr. Carter, and I will yield to your wishes.' "'Attend to it, Chick,' said Nick, turning to his assistant.' State the circumstances to Judge Barkley and bring the order here as quickly as possible. You will have no trouble in getting it. Surely not, Chick agreed, rising to go. He has absolutely confidence in your judgment. I'll return within a quarter hour. You have ample time, put in Holden. The mail will not be in for nearly half an hour. Very good, said Nick. In the meantime, Patsy, you go to the ready house and see what you can learn about Gus DeWitt you will probably find him there, for he must be expecting the special delivery letter and should be waiting for it. Sure thing, Chief, if the game is what you suspect, Patsy declared. Be off, then, and phone me here, Nick directed. Make sure you do nothing to arouse his suspicions. Trust me for that. Look up Dalton also, and see what you can learn about him. Call me up in half an hour for further instructions. I've got you, Chief, said Patsy, hastening to depart nick waited patiently postmaster holden appeared nervous and uncertain he was relieved in about fifteen minutes however by the return of chick bringing from the magistrate the order nick had requested ten minutes later a mail wagon rattled into the post office yard and holden went to bring all the special delivery letters to his private office there proved to be only six of them and the one referred to in the telegram was easily determined it bore the Philadelphia postmark and was addressed to Gus DeWitt at the ready house. "'How can you open and reseal it?' Holden questioned doubtfully while the detective examined the letter. "'Very easily,' said Nick. "'So that it will not be detected? Surely. A little steam will turn the trick, no wax having been applied to the flap of the envelope. Your radiator will serve us. We'll find out in about two minutes what this letter contains.' Nick arose while speaking and stepped to the radiator. He turned the key of the small air tube and opened the valve. A faint blowing and sputtering ensued, soon followed by the ejection of a slender stream of steam. Nick adjusted it carefully, then held the back of the envelope in the thread of steam until the heat and moisture softened the paste on the flap, which he then opened without injury, removing the letter and laying the envelope aside to dry. Now, Chick, We'll see what martin has to say in this special delivery he remarked complacently while unfolding the single sheet of paper so artfully taken from its cover chick drew nearer to gaze at it the communication was also typewritten on a sheet of perfectly plain paper it read as follows dear gus the payroll package goes through tonight tuesday on the southern limited we'll have the substitute down fine in ample time "'and the other dead to rights. "'Be on hand to relieve us of the goods "'at the point agreed upon. "'Nothing doing till south of North Dayton. "'It looks like a walkover. "'I will see you after turning the trick. "'Martin.' "'Nick Carter glanced through the letter, "'then read it aloud to his two companions. "'The significance of it could not be mistaken. "'By gracious!' Holden exclaimed. "'You are right, Mr. Carter.' It's a job to rob the express car on the Southern Limited. Nothing less, said Nick. I suspected something of the kind. That train is due here from Philadelphia, soon after midnight. A fit hour for such a felonious job, Nick declared. But we must be equal to the needs of the hour. Not a word of this to others, Holden, under any circumstances. Surely not. You can depend upon my discretion. I will make a copy of this letter. You then may reseal it and have it delivered precisely as if it had not been opened. I will do so, Mr. Carter. It took Nick only a few moments to make the copy. Holden had not finished resealing the letter, however, when the ringing of the telephone was a harbinger of a communication from Patsy. Hold that letter until after I have a talk with him. Nick directed. Patsy's report was brief and to the point. John Dalton is not known here. "'said he, speaking from a booth in the Ready House. "'Gus DeWitt arrived here two days ago. "'He has been here on other occasions for a day or two, "'but nothing definite is known about him. "'He is now in the hotel office "'and evidently is waiting for the special delivery letter. "'Anything more?' Nick inquired. "'That's all the date,' returned Patsy. "'I've got my eye on the man.' "'Keep it on him, Patsy, after he receives the letter,' Nick directed. "'Shadow him, if possible.' or find some way to trail him listen while i tell you what the letter contains it may be of advantage to you shoot i'm all ears said patsy nick then repeated the letter verbatim and told patsy of what his suspicions consisted again directing him to make a special mark of dewitt until otherwise instructed replacing the receiver nick then turned to the postmaster and said now holden you may send that letter along Take it from me, too, that Dalton will not be the wiser until I snap a pair of bracelets on his wrists. The sooner the better, Carter, in my opinion, replied the other. It could be done when the letter is delivered. I know that, Holden, but that's much too soon. It's not going to be done until I can put bracelets on every crook engaged in this job, Nick declared with grim determination. I agree with you that that would be still better, smiled Holden. Turning to hasten out with the fateful letter, for such it proved to be. End of chapter 2. Read by Paul Hampton. Chapter 3 of a fatal message. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox. Dot O-R-G. Read by Paul Hampton A Fatal Message by Nicholas Carter Chapter 3 Nick Carter's Plans Starting with a fine spun thread, a mere film that only one man in a million would have picked up under such circumstances, Nick Carter had gradually twisted it to the size of a cord of considerable strength of which he now aimed to make a rope with which to twist, perhaps, the necks of the culprits deserving it. It was after two o'clock when Nick, still in disguise and in company with Chick, left the Shelby post office. Three o'clock found them seated with Judge Barkley and President Burdick of the Esno Railway in the magnate's private office, to both of whom Nick had stated his discoveries and suspicions. It was then that he picked up another strand for the rope. He learned from President Burdick that an express shipment of $60,000 in currency and specie was to be made from Philadelphia that day, for the payroll and construction expense on the Shelbyville Branch Road, then being built, which had aroused the bitter and vengeful opposition of a lawless section of the country through which it was to pass resulting in the numerous crimes and outrages to which the road had since been subjected, and the perpetrators of which Nick and his assistants had been employed to run down. "'This proves to be about what I suspected,' Nick remarked after hearing Burdick's statements. "'We are up against some of the same bandits guilty of the previous crimes. I was not sure of it in the case of Jim Reardon, who had a personal grievance, or fancied one, to avenge. It is not too late to cancel the shipment, Carter.' "'or defer it for a few days,' Judge Barclay suggested. "'That should be done, I think,' Burdick added. "'But Nick Carter quickly objected. "'By no means,' he declared. "'That is the worst step you could take.' "'Why so?' "'Because we now have an unusual advantage over these rascals, "'in that we have anticipated their designs, "'and now is the time to catch them red-handed.' "'Surely,' Chick agreed.' It's a rare opportunity. It's one that should not be lost. "'There is something in that, Carter, after all,' Burdick thoughtfully admitted. "'We can easily protect the shipment by concealing a posse of well-armed men in the express car. "'How will that do?' "'It won't do at all,' Nick replied. "'The crooks might discover the fact and throw up the job. "'They are not working blindly, Mr. Burdick, nor in the dark.' being absolutely ignorant of their identity, moreover, you might reveal your intentions to some man who would betray you. You must leave this matter entirely to me. I want the rascals to undertake the job. I'll be on hand to prevent it. You may safely depend on him, Burdick, put in Judge Barkley. What are your plans, Mr. Carter? President Burdick inquired. I don't know, Nick said frankly. I have not laid any plans nor shall I until I get all of the information I can obtain. All I want of you, Mr. Burdick, is to answer a few questions for me. I then will do the rest. Very well. I will leave you to it, then. You will make no mistake, Nick confidently predicted. Now, to begin with, how is the money to be shipped? It will be in the express car, I infer. Yes, certainly. Locked in the safe. Who has charge of the car? A man named Daniel Cady. Reliable? Until the last gun is fired, said Burdick emphatically. I know him root and branch, Carter, and he has both judgment and courage. He would fight to the last ditch. Does he run alone on the car? Yes, the night train does not ordinarily require a second man. The express carriage on that particular train is never very heavy. Katie has had charge of that car for a dozen years. Where does he live? His home is here, in Shelby. He has a wife and several children. He now is in Philadelphia, however, for he goes and returns on alternate nights. Very good, said Nick. What time is the express due in North Dayton? Twelve o'clock, precisely. Does it stop there? Not at the station. It stops at the junction of our Western Division south of the town to take water and get instructions from Sampson, the train dispatcher here in Shelby. It is the last stop the Limited makes before reaching Shelby. A run of eighteen miles, isn't it? Nearly that. What is the next stop north? Amherst. Fourteen miles beyond North Dayton. "'There is a block signal tower at the North Dayton Junction, I infer. "'Yes, certainly. "'Who is the night operator?' "'Tom Denny, a very reliable man. "'Capital,' said Nick promptly. "'Write a line introducing me to Denny and directing him to cooperate with me. "'I shall require nothing, President Burdick, that will interfere with his customary duties.' I will give you a letter to him. Also one to Daniel Cady, added Nick. Make it of the same character. I am probably a stranger to both men. President Burdick turned to his desk and wrote the two letters, then handed them to the detective. I think that is all, said Nick, taking his hat. By the way, however, what time does the next northbound train leave Shelby? At 5.30. Does it stop at North Dayton and Amherst? Yes, both stations. That's all, Nick repeated, rising. Do absolutely nothing more in this matter, gentlemen, but leave it all to me. I will contrive to thwart these rascals and land them behind prison bars. Come, Chick, we must get a move on. What's your scheme? Chick inquired when they emerged up the street. That can be briefly told, Nick replied. Martin, whoever he is, evidently is in Philadelphia, where he probably learned about the money shipment and most likely he was there with that object in view. It is almost a safe gamble, too, that he will be on the Southern Limited tonight, since his letter to DeWitt states that he will see the latter after the robbery. I agree with you, Chick nodded. It does look indeed as if he would be on the train. What part he will play in the robbery, however, is an open question, said Nick. He may take no active part in it as far as that goes, but may leave the work to his Confederates. Possibly. We have, of course, no idea just when, where, or how the job will be attempted, Nick continued. The letter states, however, that there will be nothing doing until the train is south of North Dayton. I remember. The job will be undertaken, then, somewhere in the run of eighteen miles to Shelby. Surely. Thinking they have a walkover, as Martin terms it, the rascals may be overconfident, Nick added. I think we can foil them, however, and get them with hands up. I will leave Patsy to trail DeWitt to cover, if possible, while we tackle the train end of the job. But what do you make of the other statements in Martin's letter? Chick inquired. As to having a substitute down fine by that time, and the other dead to rights? Yes, what do you make of that? That seems open to only one interpretation, Nick reasoned. It probably refers to the package containing the money. A substitute evidently is to be used in some way, and the other taken from the express car. That sounds like a reasonable theory. The money certainly is to be on the car, however, for DeWitt is directed to be on hand to relieve someone of the goods, possibly Martin himself. Very likely. But as the letter also states, nothing is to be done until after leaving North Dayton, Nick repeated. "'And your plans?' "'We will leave town in disguise at five-thirty. "'You go as far as Amherst to board the express when it arrives. "'You must be governed by the makeup of the train "'as to what car you will take. "'Select that which Martin will be most likely to occupy, "'and be on the lookout for him, "'or for any other suspicious circumstances. "'There is a fourteen-mile run before you arrive in North Dayton.' "'I understand, Nick, and will be governed accordingly,' "'Chick assured him. "'But what are your own designs?' "'I'm going to board that express car at North Dayton,' said Nick, with rather grim intonation. "'I'll contrive to do so in a way that will occasion no misgivings, "'even if I am seen by some of the gang.' "'And then?' "'Predictions beyond that point would be speculative. "'I will make only one. "'If Katie proves to be the man of nerve and courage ascribed to him by President Burdick, "'well, in that case, Chick, if this bunch of bandits gets away with the money—' I'll chuck my vocation and open an old man's home. Chick Carter laughed. End of chapter three.
1: Chapter four of A Fatal Message. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, Or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org A Fatal Message by Nicholas Carter Chapter 4 The Real Substitute It was a clear night with a myriad of stars in the sky. The silver crescent of a quarter moon had sunk below the wooded hills in the west. A chill from the distant mountains was in the air though but little wind was stirring. The midnight stillness of the rural country south of North Dayton, where the lofty signal tower loomed up at the junction of the western division of the SNO railway, was broken only by the frequent croakings of frogs in a swamp east of the tracks or the occasional cry of some night bird circling overhead. The ND tower as it was known on the wire, was in a lonely locality. Trains stopped there only for water or in response to the signal lights, which changed from green and red to white when the night operator, Tom Denny, worked the huge levers in the tower chamber. He was seated at his telegraph stand shortly before 12 on that eventful night a compact, muscular man of middle age. A revolver was lying near the instrument. The murder in the KC Tar at Shelby, the brutal killing of Carl Glidden, also the other crimes and the outrages along the S and O road, all were so fresh in the mind of every night operator during his weary vigil that none was taking any chances of being caught unprepared. Three bells suddenly broke the stillness of the tower chamber. They told Denny that the operator in the next tower north was waiting for his unlock, that the Southern Limited was approaching north Dayton and Denny pushed the plug into the box and held it for an okay. Getting it almost instantly, he arose and set his signals. As he turned from the lever, he heard a step on the tower stairs. As quick as a flash, while a hand was laid on the knob of the door, Denny stepped to the table and seized his revolver. The door was opened, and a roughly clad, bearded man appeared on the threshold. He looked like a track hand, or one employed on the railway. He was a stranger to Denny, however, who covered him instantly, crying sharply. Hold on. Stop right there. What do you want? Nick Carter smiled and said quietly, A few words with you, Denny. Nothing more. I have a letter of introduction from President Baldick. It will tell you who I am and why I am here. Denny appeared incredulous and suspicious. Stay where you are, he commanded, toss me the letter and then hands up while I read it. Nick obeyed, remarking with a laugh. You're all right, Denny. He will be a good man indeed who catches you napping. Denny read the brief letter all the while with one eye upon the intruder. He had no doubt of Nick's identity. However, after reading the missive, and seeing the familiar handwriting of the railway president. By Jove, you gave me a disagreeable surprise to start with, Mr. Carter. But this more than makes up for it, he said heartily, placing the letter and weapon upon the table and extending his hand. Good enough, Nick replied, entering and shaking hand with him. I can indeed guess why you are here, Denny added. It is something in connection with your efforts to run down the railway bandits, I at first thought you were one of them. Quite naturally, Denny, I'm sure, smiled the detective. I know you are an employee of the road, of course, since you cornered Jim Raritan and sent him after his victim. But what's your mission here tonight? How can I be be of any help to you? Nick knew that he could safely confide in him and he then briefly informed him of the circumstances and of the steps he was taking to prevent the suspected robbery. I wish to board the express car without incurring suspicions, Denny, in case any of the gang are on the watch during this last stop of the train before the job is to be attempted. Nick proceeded to explain, I can do so, all right by pretending to be a track hand in the employ of the road. No observer seeing me come down from the signal tower would think it strange for me to board the car as if to ride to Shelby. Surely not. Denny quickly agreed. That frequently occurs. You look the part to the letter too, Mr. Carter. I wish to be with Katie in the car during the run, Nick added. I will, I think. Show these bandits that their knavery will be far from a walkover. No doubt, said Denny, smiling. You'll find KD all right too. And game to the core. He's one man in a thousand. So Burdick informed me. No one has anything on KD. Can you consistently leave the tar after the train arrives? Yes, indeed. While the engine is taking water. I nearly always have dispatches to take down, capital. Go down with me to the express car then and pretend that you know me to be a track hand and that I have a right to ride with kid. I wish to get into the car without any display of opposition on his part. I'll fix you, Mr. Carter, as far as that goes. And that is all I will require of you, said Nick. I will explain to Katie after the train leaves here. How soon is it due? In about five minutes," said Denny, glancing at a clock on the wall. I'll slip on my coat and be ready to go down with you. Very good," said Nick approvingly. Pay no attention to any person who may be on the platform or step from the train during the stop. An inquisitive stare might cause misgiving. I am wise, Mr. Carter, Denny assured him. I'll look precisely if I as if I knew nothing about this devilry. I'm over seven, you know, and he was interrupted by the sudden rapid ticking of the telegraph instrument. It proved to be a dispatch for the engineer of the coming train, and Denny scarce had transcribed it when the whistle of the locomotive sounded in the near distance. Half a minute later, the glare of its headlight appeared amid the scattered lights of the town, from which it emerged at high speed and immediately began slowing down to make the junction. Come on, Denny cried, leading the way. She stops only five minutes. Nick followed him from the chamber and down the long flight of stairs from the tower. He could feel the structure trembling under the vibrations caused by the heavy train, which then was approaching the long platform and coming to a stop amid the clanging of the locomotive bell, the furious hissing of steam, and the grinding of the brakes. Only a solitary man was pacing the platform, carrying a traveller's grip and a light overcoat. Nick saw at a glance that he was a commercial drummer and not worthy of any suspicion. Several men stepped from the train, obviously to break the monotony of a night journey. But neither the looks or actions of any appeared suspicious. Nick quickly noted the makeup of the train, a baggage car, the express car, a smoker, an ordinary passenger car and two Pullman sleepers in the rear. He knew the chick was on the train, but he did not know just where nor particularly care at that moment. Denny ran to the locomotive and gave the engineer the dispatch, then hurriedly rejoined Nick and led the way to the express car. The sliding door was thrown open from within when they approached. And Denny quickly greeted the man who appeared in the brightly lighted car. Hello, Katie, old chap, he exclaimed. You're right on time tonight, all right. Here's Jack Dakin, track hand, who will ride with you to Shelby. He missed the last local. You don't know him, I reckon, but he's all right. Ride with me? questioned Katie, sharply regarding both. He was a well-built man of middle age, of sandy complexion and wearing a full beard. He was clad in blouse and overalls with a woolen cap pulled over his brow. Nick did not wait for him to make any objections. He grasped the edge of the door and drew himself up from the platform, saying quietly while he entered the car, It's alright, Kedi. I've got a letter to you from President Burdick. Don't oppose me. Pretend this is nothing unusual. Katie seemed to grasp the situation. A fiery gleam appeared for a moment in the depths of his grey eyes. But he drew back to make room for Nick, replying in a quiet whisper, What's up? There's nothing wrong, is there? Wait until we leave here. Don't question. Cautioned Nick, it's all right, Katie. Then he quickly assured him, leading leaning in through the open door. good enough then, Katie nodded. I'll take your word for it, Tom. Nick had st- strode across the car and seated himself on a packing case, one of several that evidently had been shipped by express and which occupied one side of the car. He noticed that the door of a safe in one corner was closed and the handle indicated that the safe was properly locked and the combination scattered. He felt reasonably sure that he could, with the help of Dan Cady and Chick, foil and arrest any gang that would attempt the robbery. The clanging of the locomotive bell told that the train was about to start. Passengers on the platforms scampered toward the cars from which they had emerged. So long, KD, cried Denny, while he hissed down the stairs. Katie responded with a gesture and then closed and secured the door of the express car. A backward jolt, a jangling of bumpers and couplings, a furious hissing of steam, followed by the labored puffing of the locomotive, and the train made way and the lonely junction with its platform and signal tower were quickly left behind, grim and silent in the twilight of the starry night. Nick Carter then lost no time in explaining the situation, the outcome of which was far from what he expected, yet what no mortal man would have anticipated. Now, KD, I'll put you wise to what's in the wind, he said rising from the case on which he was seated. Here is the letter from President Baldick that will tell you who I am and a word will explain, why I am here. Kerry opened the letter and read it and then gazed more sharply at the detective. Well, say, this is some surprise, he said bluntly. I did not dream you were Nick Carter, though I knew you were in the employ of the road. Do you suspect something wrong tonight, Mr. Carter? That you have boarded my car in this way? More than suspect, Nick replied. You are carrying a money package of $60,000, aren't you? Yes, Mr. Carter, I am. Where is it? Locked in the safe, of course. Very good. Nick nodded. It will be up to you and me, Katie, to prevent a bunch of bandits from removing it from the safe. Not only prevent them, KD, but also corner and arrest them. Are you game for such an undertaking? KD continued to look Nick straight in the eye. Game, sir? He exclaimed, you bet I'm game. If they get that money, Mr. Carter, they'll get it over my dead body. But why suspect anything of the kind. Nick briefly informed him and the bearded face of the express car man took on a more serious expression. So, you got wise to all that from the two telegrams? He said inquiringly. Exactly. Nick nodded. You're a keen man, Mr. Carter. Not at all, Mr. Kelly. It's a part of my business to detect such things when they come my way. What other steps have you taken to prevent this job? None of importance. Nick said evasively, I think that you and I, KD, will be able to prevent it. Sure, sir, as far as that goes, KD quickly agreed. Do you know just where and how it is to be attempted? Not now, KD, but somewhere between here and Shelby. We have not long to wait then, KD declared. We make the run from North Dayton in 26 minutes. Where are we now? We have covered about 8 miles. We are in Willow Creek section, a mighty lonely locality. And the next place near which we pass is Benton Corners. Benton Corners? Nick echoed. That's where I rounded up Jim Realdon and where Jake Hanlon, Link Magic, and Dick Bryan live. I suspected them of having been Realdon Confederates. But we have we could not convict them. It may be by jove that they are engaged in this job. Quite likely. They're certainly bad eggs. You know them then? By name and sight. KD nodded. But we'll be ready for them. Your armed, sir. Of course. And I have a revolver in the safe. I'll get it and... No, no. Don't unlock the safe. Nick quickly objected. The job may be attempted at any moment. I have two revolvers. Take one of them and be ready to hold up the rascals. I'll be ready, KD declared, taking the weapon. Throw up your hands, Carter, and be darn quick about it, or you'll get a slug of lead from your own weapon. Nick Carter was never more surprised in his life. KD had turned the revolver squarely upon the detective and there was a gleam in his eyes, a vicious ring in his voice, denoting that he meant what he said. No sane man would have ignored them and Nick threw up his hands. They stood confronting one another in the swaying car, these two men, KD with a murderous look on his bearded face, The detective, with an expression of sudden, terrible sternness, mingled with surprise. What is this, Katie? He demanded. I was told that you are a true blue man and a man of courage. You don't want to believe all you are told. Katie snarled back at him. Don't drop your hands, Carter, or I'll drop you. Are you in with this gang? Nick sternly questioned. You bet I'm in with it, I'm out to get this coin, and to get you now, since you know so much about. about... The car lurched suddenly on a curve. The revolver covering the detective's breast deviated for a moment as Katie swayed under a sudden lurch. It was the moment for which Nick Carter was watching. He was as quick as a flash in seizing the opportunity. His left hand shot downward and grasped the miscreant's wrist, turning the revolver aside, while his right shot out and closed with a vice-like grip around KD's neck. In with this gang, are you? he shouted. You shall pay the price then. But again, the unexpected occurred. Another lurch of the car threw both men and then engaged in the terrible struggle against the wall of the car. Kerry's beard was torn off and the truth was revealed. This man was not Kerry; It was not a substitute package to which the telegram had referred, but a substitute man. Something like a half-smothered oath broke from the detective. He swung the struggling ruffian around and forced him against the wall of the swaying car. He could have overcome him and crushed him within half a minute if help had not been at hand. All transpired, in fact, in less time than half a minute. The covers of the two packing cases flew upwards. Out of each case leapt a man, a bludgeon in the hand of one, There squarely on Nick's head, the fist of the other caught him on the jaw. A blow from the supposed Kerry landed over his heart. And under this combined assault, made with all the vicious energy of utter desperation, Nick Carter sank to the floor of the reeling car, bleeding and insensible, with every muscle relaxed. End of chapter 4. Read by Abha Zog, Pune, November 2021. Chapter 5 of A Fatal Message This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Fatal Message by Nicholas Carter. Chapter 5 Night Work. Chick Carter, in accord with the plans laid out by Nick, was in Amherst that evening in the disguise of a travelling salesman. He was waiting on the station platform when the Southern Limited arrived. Chick sized up the train as it rolled into the station. He did not definitely know, of course, whether the crook who had sent a telegram from Philadelphia was among the passengers, but he strongly suspected that he was, And he also knew that Nick would board the express car at North Dayton. If the crook is on the train and intends to take any active part in the robbery, It's 10 to 1 that he is in the ordinary passenger car. Chick reasoned. He certainly would not be in a sleeper. He would reason too that he would be less liable to suspicion than if he rode in the smoker. Chick acted upon these theories. He entered the next car back of the smoker, the later being back of the express and baggage cars and he took one of the rear seats from which he could see most of the other occupants of the car. It was about two-thirds filled with men and women travelling singly or in couples. Chick pretended to have no interest in any of them. None, nevertheless, escaped his furtive scrutiny during the run of 14 miles to North Dayton. He could discover none, however, whose looks or actions seemed to warrant suspicion. Twenty minutes took the train to North Dayton. Gazing furatively from the window, Chick saw the lights in the signal tower, saw Nick and Denny hissing down the stairs, saw Denny return alone just as the train was starting, which convinced him that Nick then was in the express car, as planned. Two men who had briefly left the train returned to the car in which Chick was seated. He was a keen reader of faces. He saw plainly enough that neither of the men was a crook, or at least no such crook as he was seeking. The train rushed on through the starry night. Chick knew that the time was rapidly approaching when, if Nick's deductions were correct, the robbery would be attempted. I'll not cut much ice here, he said to himself, at length. I think i'll take a look at the occupants of the smoker that'll bring me nearer to the express car he was about to do so when his attention was drawn to a couple three seats in front of him and on the opposite side of the aisle one was a respectable looking well-dressed man of quality with grave dark eyes and a van dyke beard his companion was an attractive woman of about 30 years old with a fair complexion and an abundance of light brown hair. Her fine figure was clad in a tailor-made travelling costume of bottle green. They were about the last couple in the car to have invited suspicion. The train had begun to labour on a steep upgrade. The man with a Van Dyke beard drew out a cigar and bit the end from it then said a few words to the woman. She bowed and smiled, revealing a double row of white teeth, and the man arose with a backward glance and smile at her, then went into the smoker. Chick watched him thoughtfully, but not suspiciously, when he strode through the aisle and out of the car. Plainly enough, it appeared the man had excused himself politely to his companion in order to go for a smoke. It appeared like the act of a gentleman. Chick felt no immediate impulse to follow him and his attention was again drawn towards the woman. She was moving to a position nearer the lamps and was spreading a newspaper to read it. Chick saw that it was a Philadelphia newspaper. By Jove, they evidently came from Philadelphia, he said to himself. Can it be that they... No, no. That seems quite improbable. No man engaged in a train robbery or with any interest in one would be travelling with a woman. Besides, neither looks like a crook but quite the contrary. She may have bought the paper on the train or... uh... Chick's train of thought took a sudden startling turn. A brakeman went rushing through the aisle in the direction of the smoking car. Chick noticed now that the train was rapidly slowing down. He heard shouts from the smoker when the brakeman opened the door. Great guns! He muttered, staring up and following him. Has the trick been turned? Has the job been done? In spite of us? Chick hurried through the car and entered the smoker. A dozen excited men were gathered near the forward door and upon the platform and steps. In another moment, Chick was among them and he saw at a glance what had occurred. The train had been divided. The rear cars of it had come up to a stop on the steep upgrade. The forward section, consisting of the locomotive, baggage car and express car, were vanishing around the curve in the tracks more than half a mile away. A solitary man, then, was on the rear platform of the express car, though invisible in the darkness. The man with the Van Dyke beard. Scarce two minutes had elapsed since he passed through the smoker. He had not sat down nor lighted his cigar, but walked deliberately out upon the open platform. Then, with the speed and dexterity of one familiar with such work, he disconnected the signal cord, and the air brake coupling, set the front brake of the smoker, and then unlocked and threw the lever that uncoupled the two cars. Then he leaped to the back platform of the express car just as it forged ahead, leaving the rear section of the broken train falling swiftly behind. Leaning out from the platform steps to make absolutely sure of his location, the man then waited until the forward section struck the curve mentioned. He then seized the bell cord and signalled the engineer to stop. The response was immediate. Almost on the instant the grinding of the brakes was mingled with the roar and rumble of the wheels and the rush of the night wind around him. Gazing towards a desolate wooden country on the right, he saw that he had timed the desperate work to a nicety. Three quick flashes of light met his gaze, coming from a point in the woods scarce twenty feet from the railway. He turned and banged twice on the car door with the butt of his revolver. The three men within were awaiting the signal. The sliding door of the car then was opened. So was the door of the safe, a large leather bag, nearly as large as a letter pouch, was lying on the floor. Nearby, gagged and securely bound, lay Nick Carter, still insensible. One of his assailants of only a few minutes before, now hearing the signals, yelled excitedly. Out with him, Moller! The roadbed is sandy! Out with him! Sandy be hanged! shouted Moller, the miscreant who had impersonated Keddy. It may be lucky for us if his neck is broken. He rolled the detective's inanimate form from the car while speaking and it vanished into the gloom outside. The large leather pouch quickly followed. The car was steadily slowing down. There was a bang on the front door. But the door was locked and barricaded. One after another of three men leaped from the car. The man on the rear platform sprang down and joined them. They ran back over the roadbed while the deserted car surged onward for nearly 50 yards before stopping, before the engineer and baggage hand began a more active and energetic investigation. The four men then were a hundred yards down the track. Invisible in the faint starlight at that distance, other figures appeared from amid the gloomy woods. The burdens lying on the roadbed, one more than the scoundrels had figured upon, were quickly seized and removed into the depths of the forest that flanked the railway for miles in that locality. Much can be quickly accomplished by determined men in such desperate circumstances. Only eight minutes had passed since the Southern Limited had left North Dayton. Something like uh, three minutes later, Chick Carter, followed by half a score of men, anxious to learn what had occurred, came running up the track and joined the engineer and other train hands. Then, gathered in, in and around the looted express car. Chick saw at a glass that the tick had indeed been turned and also that Mick Carter was missing. Great guns! he exclaimed to himself. This is strange! think strange, and wherein thunder is scary? Chick decided to listen briefly before revealing his identity and what he knew about the case- a self-restraint which few would have had under such circumstances, and very soon determined to say nothing for the engineer in train hands familiar with the desolate section of the country, quickly came to two conclusions: one that. KD had been overcome by the robbers who had been concealed in the empty packing cases. The other, that he had been carried away with the plunder from the open safe by a gang of Desperados whom it would be useless to pursue at that time. Chick knew that they were mistaken and he also felt sure that he could accomplish nothing then and there. The evidence in the car showed him plain enough that Nick had been overcome by the bandits. And he realized that any attempt at immediate pursuit would be worse than futile. He sprang into the express car when the conductor insisted that he must run on to Shelby and the cars were first run back to couple on the rear section of the broken drive. Chick returned to his seat in the car which he had occupied from Amherst. The blonde woman, apparently wearied by the delay and with no interest in the occasion for it, seemed to have fallen asleep over her newspaper. Chick Carter noticed her again soon after resuming his seat and he was suddenly hit by an idea. By thunder, he mentally exclaimed. What has become of her companion? Can he have been in the smoker all the while? No, not by long chalk. He would not have left her here asleep if she really is asleep he would have returned to tell her about the robbery. (laughs) there is nothing to this, he abruptly decided. I have had that Philadelphia crook under my very eye. This woman's companion, the fellow with the Van Dyke beard. He must have bolted with the gang too, or I should have seen him on the railway or in the smoker. All this will be a cinch by Jove, unless he shows up before we reach Shelby. I am glad I kept my trap closed, my identity is not suspected, and I will have a clue worth following. The woman. Presently moving from side to side, selecting such persons as hit his fancy, the conductor came through the car and took the names and addresses of several people, explaining that witnesses might be wanted in a later investigation, who were not in the employ of the railway company. The woman was among those questioned, She yawned and looked up at him with a frown. Pardon me, she declined. A bit curtly, I do not wish to be brought into an investigation. It may not be necessary after all, said the conductor suavely. But I know nothing about the affair except that the train stopped and that a robbery is to be committed, the woman objected. Besides, my home is in Philadelphia and it would not be convenient for me to be summoned to an investigation. You would be excused, no doubt. In that case, persisted the conductor. Surely, madam, you have no other reason for refusing to give me your name and address. No other reason, she exclaimed impatiently. Certainly not, sir. Kindly do so then. The woman hesitated for another moment. By Jove, she is decided whether... Whether to give him a fictitious name, thought Chick, intently watching her frowning face. She will not be fool enough to do so. Chick was right. The woman decided nearly as quickly as he that deception at that time might later make her liable to serious suspicion. She drew herself up a bit haughtily and said, Very well then, since you insist upon it. My name is Janet Payson. Thank you, smiled the conductor. And your address? Number 20, Martin Street, Philadelphia. The conductor bored and moved on. Martin Street, thought Chick, instantly recalling the signature on the Dalton telegram. Martin fits in here, alright. She told the truth and has picked up a very proper lead. It's not such a long, long way to Tipperary after all. We shall see. The woman left the train at Shelby, carrying only a suitcase, and she accosted a cabman outside of the station. Shelby House, she directed curtly. Chick was at her elbow and hurled her. Ten minutes later, he read her name inscribed on the hotel register. Miss Janet Payson, Philadelphia. End of chapter 5 Read by Abhazo Pune November 2021. Chapter 6 of A Fatal Message This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Fatal Message by Nicholas Carter Chapter 6, How Patsy Made Good It was one o'clock when Chick Carter entered his room in the Shelby house. He removed his coat, hat and disguise, then lit a cigar and sat down to size up the circumstances and the evidence he had found in the express car. How was the robbery committed? How did Carey figure in it? And what became of him? How had Nick been overcome and why had he been carried away by the bandits, assuming that he had not been killed and thrown from the car? Chick did not believe the last. He would have seen the body when hastening up the tracks. He knew that these crooks would commit murder only as a last resort. Moreover, and the evidence in the car did not point to bloodshed and murder. Chick felt reasonably sure, in fact, that Nick was alive and in the hands of the desperados. Two empty packing cases and an open safe opened by means of the combination. He mused intently. No force apparent except what must have been required to get the best of Nick and Katie. But could two men concealed in packing cases and the cases could not have contained more than two have overcome two such men as nick and katie by jove it doesn't seem possible nor could janet Payson's companion have had any hand in the work done in the express car he would have had time only to disconnect the train which he certainly went forward to do all that was cut and dried previously planned and it was done by a man, expert, at such work. Is it possible, then, that Katie is in league with those crooks? Did he hold up Nick and get him with the help of his hidden confederates? Did he open the safe? Did he substitute? Stop one moment. By Jove, there was no substitute money package in the car, nor in the safe. Or, I must surely have seen it. I made a thorough inspection. Chicks brows knit closer under the mental concentration with which he strove to fathom the conflicting circumstances. That special delivery letter certainly mentioned a substitute. It read, I remember distinctly. We'll have the substitute down fine in ample time and the other dead to rights. Hmm. That's not so clear in view of what has occurred and the fact that no substitute money package was found in the car. It certainly is worded a bit oddly. To have one debt to rights is a term usually applied to a situation, a gang or a man, not to a parcel, package or anything of that kind. By Jove, it may in this case have been a man. The substitute may have been a man in place of Kedi. That would explain Kedi's disappearance from the car. A man made up to perfectly resemble Kedi. That's it. By gracious, as sure as I'm a foot high, Chick decided. That's why Martin worded the letter in that way. That he'd have a substitute down fine in ample time. A substitute to take Kerry's place in the express car, that's what. Chick's countenance had lighted. Through this process of reasoning, he had reduced the one fact, the one crafty subterfuge that had made the robbery possible under all of the other known circumstances. It told Chick too how easily confederates of the substitute rascal could have been concealed in the car and how easily Nick could have been held up and overcome under such unexpected adverse conditions. But what has become of Kerry? Chick next asked himself. He was supposed to be in Philadelphia, of course, in order to make this run. By Joe, I have it. Got him dead to rights. Eh, I'll see about that. I'll set another ball rolling in this game. One that may knock out a 10 strike. Chick sprang up with the last and hastened down to the hotel office. Entering a telephone booth and closing the door, he called up the central exchange and learned that he could quickly get a clear wire to Philadelphia. I want the police headquarters, said he, the officer in charge. Chick had waited only seven minutes. Then the operator rang him up and announced, all ready. Hello, Chick called. Police Headquarters, Philadelphia? Yes. Distance did not serve to soften the strong, sonorous voice. The wire carried the sound perfectly. The voice was a familiar one to the detective, that of an old friend in police circles, and Chick laughed audibly. It's easy to recognize a voice that rings true, said he. How are you, Lieutenant Lang? Fine, came the answer. But who are you? Chickering Carter. Oh ho, chick, eh. Lang's sonorous laugh could be heard. (laughs) Glad to hear from you. Where are you? On a case down Shelby Way. I heard Nick, that Nick was in that section. Something doing? Plenty, Lang, and then some. That just about suits you, I suppose. How can I aid you? I want hurry-up information about a woman. What name? Janet Payson. You'll not have to wait long, cried Lang, laughing. I can supply you right off the reel. Good. Chick cried. Do you know her? Only professionally, Lang responded. She's pretty well-known here by the boys in brass buttons. What about her, Ned? Fly! Fly! said Lang tersely, as fly as one often meets. A crook? Chick inquired. Crooked, but not a crook. I don't know that she has ever been arrested. She devotes her attractions to bleeding any easy mark that comes along her way. She is known here as Jaunty Janet. I've got you, said Chick. Do you know where she lives? That's a fat question. What am I on the force for? Lang cried, laughing. She has a ground floor flat in Martin Street, number 20. Correct, Chick exclaimed. Do you know anything about her male friends? No, nothing. Listen, I want you to do something for me. Come across with a chick and consider it done. Telegraph me the result. Address me in care of the Shelby house. I will do so what's wanted. Chick told him and returned to his room, at the door of which he now found Patsy Garvan. "Gee, I've been on nettles for an hour ever since the Southern Limited arrived, Patsy impatiently declared after greeting him. I was at the station and heard about the robbery, but I saw nothing of you or the chief and I figured that you both were in wrong for fair What's become of the chief? I've been here twice in search of you. Couldn't you head off the job? What do you want for a starter? Why didn't you? (sighs) Cut it, cut it, chick interrupted. Bridle your tongue or you'll ask more questions than I could answer before daylight. Hit up a cigar and give me time to explain. You're not all the mustard in the pot. Didn't you know that? Sure, I know it, retorted Patsy. But I am some mustard, uh, all the same, with a dash of Tabasco thrown in. What's eating ya anyway? Send for an ice bag and cool your block. Your hair may wilt with the heat and look like dead grass. <laughs> You'd be a bird then. Chick laughed and lit another cigar. It was two in the morning, mind you. And both had been busy on, and on their nerves for 18 hours. A sufficient excuse for impatience and irritability, which really had no sting. Patsy grinned and sat down, taking a briar pipe from his pocket and deliberately filling it. Not until he had lit it and wafted a cloud of smoke toward the ceiling did he speak again. And then he stared at Chick and said simply, Well, Chick settled back in his chair and told him what had occurred. Patsy's face then had lost its sphinx-like expression. Jeeves, he commented. Say, Chick, old top, this isn't so bad. Come on with it, Chick replied. Knowing, he had something to report. What have you learned? That's worth knowing. Worth knowing? That's my long suit with four honours, said Patsy. I never pick up thirteen measly duckers, no matter who deals the papes. Say, chick, old chap, listen. Listen, eh? What do you think I am doing? Do I look like a lay figure with wax ears? I am listening. Patsy ended his levity and drew up in his chair. You know whose trail I have been on? That of Gus Dewitt, he said earnestly. I got the chief's telephone spiel from the post office which put me wise to what that special delivery letter contained and that was the last I knew of his suspicions and designs. But I had my eye on Duit, alright? And I saw him receive the letter and read it. And then, questioned Chick. He made a move that nearly shook me off his track. Patsy continued. He bolted straight for the stable back of the reddy house. He had a horse out there tied under a shed. And he mounted him without a word to anyone. And rode out of town as if a dozen devil's imps were after him. You know why he went, of course. Sure thing, chick, since I knew what was in that letter. I knew he had gone to notify the gang that the job was to be done tonight. Certainly, Chick nodded. There was nothing else to it. There was enough more to it to keep me on the go until nearly dark, Patsy protested. It was up to me to trail him, wasn't it? Sure, Chick smiled. I'll admit that. Well, it did prove to be soft walking, Patsy resumed. I got next to the hustler, two stable hands and a chauffeur who hang around there. But they didn't know him from a side of leather, except that his name was Gus Dewitt and he occasionally rode into town for a day or an evening. I see. Then a cabbie showed up, who remembered having seen him ride in one night with Jake Hanlon, at whose place we cornered Jim Riordan for the Glidden Murder. Hmm, At Benton Corners. Sure, nodded Patsy. That, of course, put a bee in my bonnet. I reasoned that if DeWitt and Hanlon were friends, both might be in this job, as well as those two thoroughbred rascals who hang out at Hanlon's place, Dick Bryan and Link Maggie. Quite likely, Patsy, Chick agreed. I reckoned too that DeWitt was heading for Benton Corners, since he had taken that direction. You went out there? I decided to take that chance, for I could see no other way of trailing him. As I was leaving the stable yard, however, I noticed the tracks left by his horse's hoofs. What about them? One had a little peculiarity. What was that? The shoe on the off fore hoof was different from the others. It had a bar plate and the mark of it showed plainly whenever it stuck yielding soil. I follow you, Chick nodded, and I followed the tracks of that bar-plate shoe. There were none in the paved streets, mind you, but I hustled out to the road leading to Benton corners, and there I found the tracks again. Good work. Knowing I might be mistaken, however, if I assumed that Dewitt had gone to Hanlon's place, I decided to stick to my trail. A wise decision, Patsy. It took me some time to follow it, but it led me to Hanlon's place, alright? And after watching from the woods back of the stable until late in the afternoon, I made a discovery. Yes, Jake Hanlon showed up on horseback and rode into the stable. And Dick Bryan came from the house and joined him. But the discovery? Patsy? Bryan had it in his hand said Patsy dryly. The special delivery letter and a disguise he had worn as Gus Dewitt. So Brian and Dewitt are the same, eh? Yes. And Dalton thrown in, declared Patsy. Brian has been posing as in all three characters. He's a pretty slick gink at that too, I judge, from the confidence with he spoke when talking with Hanlan about it. You could hear what they were saying? Only for a few moments. Brian showed him the letter and the telegrams and they then hurried into the house. Out they came in about 10 minutes, however, both with revolvers and shotguns. and They mounted their horses and rode off to the north. To join others of the gang, no doubt, said Chick. That's how I sized it up, surely. Hanlon spoke of another crib But he said nothing definite and I knew only the direction they took. Patsy went on. I felt pretty sure that you and the chief would head off the robbery, you see. So I hiked back to Shelby to hunt you up and report. Now hang it. I learned that the job has been pulled off and you think that the chief is in the hands of those rascals. I have hardly a doubt of it, said Chick. It won't be easy, then, to corner this gang and recover their plunder, Patsy dubiously declared. They'll know where after them and... But not what you've discovered, put in Chick pointedly. That's true, that may help some, Patsy allowed. If we could only find out what the other crib handler meant and where it is located and devise some way to get there before... They can cover their tracks and dispose of Nick. Stop a moment. Chicken interrupted. I think we can accomplish both. You do? Patsy's countenance lighted. I certainly do. We'll put something over on these Ruffians. Patsy, that will have failed to enter their heads. We'll get them all right. Take it from me. What do you mean? Explain. Pull up here and listen. The chick tossing away a cigar end of chapter 6 read by avazo pune december 2021
2: chapter 7 of a fatal message this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. A Fatal Message by Nicholas Carter Chapter 7 Chick Carter's Cunning Miss Janet Payson was seriously startled about 10 o'clock the following morning when a somewhat insistent knock sounded on the door of her apartments in the Shelby House. The same was true of her companion, who had entered about half an hour before, after leaving his touring car in a neighboring street, in charge of a chauffeur and another man, as if their mission was one that required at least a moderate degree of caution. Janet Payson's companion was the man with the Van Dyke beard, but he had removed it and slipped it into his pocket since entering. The removal of the disguise did not improve him. It had served to hide a thin-lipped, sinister mouth, a bulldog jaw and chin, and the hard lines of a desperate and determined face that he was all that his face denoted moreover appeared in the celerity with which he whipped out a revolver from his hip pocket the instant the knock interrupted the subdued conversation with the woman at the same time he muttered quickly what's that who the devil can that be janet payson turned pale or as pale as the tinge of rouge in her cheeks permitted and she laid her finger on her lips then pointed to the adjoining bedroom Keep quiet, Jeff, she whispered. I'll find out. The man, Jefferson Murdoch by name, seized his hat and tiptoed into the bedroom and set the door ajar. Then he waited and listened, revolver in hand. The knock sounded again on the hall door. Presently, cried the woman, who's there? She tore open the collar of her waist while speaking, receiving no the reply, then stepped to the door and opened it i had not finished dressing she said impatiently hastening to rehook the collar what do you want chick carter was the person who had knocked and none would have recognized him though fairly well clad and somewhat flashily he had the sinister aspect of an east side tough or a man capable of any covert knavery chick removed his hat and smiled nevertheless replying as politely as one would have expected I want to talk with you for a half a minute, or maybe longer, Miss Payson, if you're alone here. Talk with me, said Janet, with brows knitting. What about, and who are you? My name is Kennedy, Jim Kennedy, and I live in Philadelphia, said Chick, dropping his voice suggestively. I happened to be on the train last night when... Wait, stop a moment, Janet curtly interrupted, drawing back step inside i don't care to be seen talking with you close the door sure chick vouchsafed with sinister intonation that hits me all right it's just what i wanted but none would think less of you for talking with me as far as that goes not much there could be no mistaking such a beginning as this and the woman's white face lost much of its beauty under the vicious scowl that settled upon it what do you mean by that she demanded you ought to know said chick well i don't know janet retorted let it go at that then take it for what it's worth see here you insolent oh cut that chick interrupted unruffled "'Don't go into the air because I'm not handing you a pasteboard with my moniker on it. "'I don't happen to have one. "'I ain't a gink what carries his name pasted in his lid. "'My name is Kennedy, plain Jim Kennedy, "'and I've got a word to say to you on a little matter of business. "'That's why I'm here, Miss Payson.' "'Chick coolly took a chair while speaking, "'the same from which Murdoch had just arisen.' He noticed at once that both wooden arms of the chair were slightly warm, where the hands of some person had been recently resting on them. Though he already knew that the woman was not alone, having been watching her apartment since early morning, he looked up at her and quickly added, I've taken your chair, maybe. No, she replied, pointing to one near her dressing stand. I was sitting there. See here, Mr. Kennedy, what's the meaning of this visit? Come to the point. She had appeared in doubt up to that time, uncertain what course to shape, but her voice and countenance now denoted that she anticipated what was coming, that she suspected the mission of her sinister visitor, and that she also felt fully equal to meeting the situation. She sat down quite abruptly and repeated, Come to the point. What do you want here? That's quickly told, Chick replied. "'It's about the little job that was pulled off last night.' "'What job, Mr. Kennedy?' "'That train robbery. You know all about it.' "'All about it?' Janet exclaimed. "'What do you mean by that? I know nothing about it, except that there was a robbery.' "'Oh, yes you do,' Chick insisted. "'Nick's on that. I happen to be on the train, and I'm wise to something that no other gazabo noticed.' What was that? she coldly questioned. There was a gink with you in the car who didn't show up after the robbery. What of that? He quit you just before the trick was turned, and he didn't come back to you. He was no comeback kid, Chick declared. He went through the smoker and uncoupled it from the express car. He was the gink who did the job, or one of the bunch, and you know it. "'The woman heard him with hardly a change of countenance. "'You are very much mistaken,' she said icily. "'About what?' "'My knowing anything about the robbery, or the man you mention.' "'He was with you, wasn't he?' "'He sat with me, yes,' Janet coldly admitted. "'But that signifies nothing. "'There was no other vacant seat when he entered the car, so he sat with me.' and we entered into conversation that did not end until he left me and went into the smoker that's all I know about him-all I care about him he was a total stranger to me chick grinned derisively and shook his head say do i look as if I'd swallow that he asked with sinister contempt you may swallow it or not as you like janet retorted with apparent indifference It might slip down the red lane of a country parson, but not down mine, Chip went on. You see, Miss Payson, I haven't knocked round Quaker Town all my life for nothing. I know all about you. I've seen you round town for years. Suppose you have, sneered Janet. What of that? Nothing of it, barring that I know all about you, Chick informed her more impressively. Your name is Janet Payson sometimes jaunty Janet, and you live in a ground-floor flat in Martin Street. That's what. You see, I am on to your curves, and I'm here to knock out a homer. That's me. See here. Nick's on the see-here gag, Chick interrupted. You wait till I've said my little verse. Then you can have your spiel and go as far as you like. You ain't any main dame in the social game you're only the little casino in a soiled deck your word wouldn't go in a quaker meeting-house say nothing of a criminal court i know i'm wise you can't put nothing over on me well what are you coming to scowled janet with the rouge glaring more vividly on her pale cheeks that's right that's more like it chick went on with a sinister nod now we're getting down to brass tacks Pass up the grouch and let's talk business. Well, snapped Janet. You know what I want. There was a slick job pulled off last night, and somebody has got sixty thousand bucks in his jeans. I want a bit of it. You do, Janet sneered. You'll take it out in wanting, then, as far as I'm concerned. Maybe so, though. I have a hunch that you'll change your mind, Chick retorted. If you don't. It will be all over but the settling. What do you mean by settling? You know what I mean, all right. Maybe, though you don't quite get me. I'll make it so plain that a blind monkey could see it in the dark. I'm not for the coin myself, you know, when I see a chance to lift any. I'd be a bird if I let this chance slip by. You mean... I mean all I am saying, Chip cut in. With ominous mien, understand though I'm not a gink who would betray a pal. I wouldn't squeal on a friend if I was strung toes up, not on your tin type. But I'm not a pal of yours, nor of any of the bunch. I wasn't in this job. I'm only looking to get in. You mean that you're here to blackmail me? Snapped Janet. Is that it? Blackmail be hanged! Growled Chick derisively. You can't blackmail an ink spot. "'You know what I want, and I'm going to have it.' "'I'll know when you tell me,' frowned the woman. "'Not till then.' Chick jerked his chair nearer to that in which she was seated. There was, indeed, no mistaking his meaning, if one was to have judged from outward appearances. His hang-dog face wore an expression that none could have misinterpreted. "'I'll tell you what I mean, all right,' he replied with more threatening intonation. I want a bit of that coin, and I'm going to have it. When I get it, I'll go about my business and keep my trap closed. I'll never squeal. I'll never yip till the day of judgment. You can bank on that, and bank on it good and strong. I can, eh? That's what. And suppose you don't get it? questioned Janet, with lowering gaze at him. What then? You'll get yours instead you mean i take it that you'll inform the police that's just what i mean chick nodded unless someone comes across with a coin it's you for the caboose i'll have a bull after you inside of half a minute i'll tell all i know about the job and all i know about you your story wouldn't stand washing in distilled water the gink with the van dyke whiskers did the job and you know it i'll hand all this to the bulls unless i get mine and I'll lose no time about it. That's all. It's up to you, now. What do you say? I say that you may go to the devil, Kennedy, and do your worst, snapped Janet, with eyes flashing. I say... Stop a moment, stop a moment, cried Murdoch, stepping into the room. I reckon it's time for me to have my say. Or this. Chick swung around in his chair and found himself gazing... Into THE BLACK MUZZLE OF A LEVELED REVOLVER. End of chapter 7 Read by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona November 7, 2021 Chapter 8 of A Fatal Message This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Fatal Message by Nicholas Carter CHAPTER Eight: A CHANGE OF BASE Chick Carter did not appear much disturbed by the threatening turn of the situation. He gazed at the weapon, then at the man, without stirring from his chair. Murdoch had not replaced his disguise. His dark-featured face wore a look as threatening as his weapon. He added coldly, nevertheless, while Janet Payson shrank back with a look of alarm. "'You keep quiet, Janet, and let me settle this fellow. I ought to let the gun do the talking, Kennedy, but I'm not going to. I only want to show you that I could turn you down on the spot if I was so inclined.' Chick recognized the man in spite of his changed appearance, and he had known from the first that he was in Janet's apartments. He pretended to be surprised, however, and to have no idea that this was her companion of the previous night on the train. He drew up in his chair and replied, frowning darkly, "'You've got the drop on me, all right, but—' "'But I don't intend to take advantage of it,' Murdoch interrupted, thrusting the weapon into his pocket. "'There is a better way and a less risky one to settle this business. "'I have heard all you said to this woman, Kennedy—' She told me she was alone, growled Chick, with an ugly glance at her. No, she didn't, said Murdock, taking a chair. You took it for granted. I heard all she said. That's neither here nor there, however. The question is, Kennedy, what do you really intend doing? You heard what I said, replied Chick, with a defiant stare at him. You really mean it, do you? That's what. "'I'm going to have my bit out of this job "'or there is going to be something doing. "'You will tell all you know, eh? "'That's about the size of it. "'But you can be bought? "'Sure thing. "'That's what I'm here for.' "'I see,' said Murdoch with a nod. "'But why does it devolve upon her to buy your silence? "'That's up to the person who committed the crime. "'Assuming that you are right,' that the man you saw with her on the train had a hand in the robbery. She certainly played no part in it. It's hardly fair to ring her into it, or to ask her to buy your silence. I'm out for the coin, and I'm going to get it, Chick grimly insisted. Do you know the man, her companion? No, but it's enough that she knows him, and... Could you identify him? Murdoch interrupted. Sure I could. "'I saw him plain enough on the train.' "'Murdoch smiled a bit oddly, "'sure that Chick did not suspect him of having been the crook. "'He took a cigar from his pocket and lit it, "'remarking carelessly. "'You're a bad egg, Kennedy, "'and you're serving this woman a scurvy trick. "'No more could be expected of a fellow of your cloth, I suppose, "'and I'm not sure, "'but that would be the best way to settle with you.' "'Sure it would.' Chick quickly agreed. See here, Jeff. You keep quiet, Janet, Murdock commanded. It's plain enough that Kennedy cannot be bullied. You're in a mess, Janet, and I'm going to pull you out. Nevertheless, Kennedy, you must see that it's not up to this woman to settle, he added. She had no hand in the job, even if your suspicions are correct. It's up to the man to buy your silence. As a matter of fact... Two, she has no money with which to bribe you, nor have I. You must see the man himself. Trot him out, then, Chick said bluntly. He's the very gink I want to see. I'll bring him to time, all right, if I can get my lamps on him. It's not so easy to trot him out, Burdock replied. He would have to trot a considerable distance. You mean he ain't in town? questioned Chick. "'frowning suspiciously. "'Not within a dozen miles of Shelby. "'You know where he is, then, I take it?' "'Murdoch nodded. "'I not only know where he is, Kennedy, "'but I'll take you to him,' he said, after a moment. "'He's the man for you to see, "'and I have no doubt that you can make some kind of a deal with him. "'He will conclude that's the best way out of the difficulty, "'most likely.' "'providing your demands are not exorbitant. "'Oh, I don't want the earth,' Chick allowed. "'It's up to you, then. "'What is?' "'To go with me and see him,' said Murdoch, "'in more friendly fashion. "'I came in this morning to take Janet out there. "'You may go with us.' "'There's a better way,' Chick objected, "'grimly shaking his head. "'A better way?' "'Sure,' Let him come here and see me. Don't be a fool, Kennedy, Murdoch replied with a growl. He wouldn't take chances of coming into town. It would be all that his neck is worth to him. And it might be all that mine is worth to me if I went where he is, Chick dryly asserted. What do you mean by that? He might give it to me where the chicken got the axe. Turn you down? Is that what you mean? "'That's what,' Chick nodded. "'I'm not taking that kind of a chance. "'Not for mine.' "'Murdoch laughed and shook his head. "'You'll take no chance at all, Kennedy, in going to see him,' he replied in assuring tones. "'Neither he nor any of his gang would risk running their necks into a rope unless it was absolutely necessary.' "'Wouldn't, eh?' queried Chick doubtfully. "'Certainly not,' Murdoch insisted.' and it wouldn't be necessary in this case. With the big wad of money acquired by the robbery, they'll be willing enough to settle for any ordinary sum, rather than take the risk of putting you away, even if so inclined. Maybe so, after all, Chick demurred. I already have shown you, besides, that I could have turned you down on the spot if I had wanted to, Murdoch added. But I wouldn't have a hand in that kind of a job, "'You'll take no risk, Kennedy, in going to see the man.' "'Chick was not blind to the trap that was being laid for him. "'He had expected no less, and had laid his own plans accordingly. "'He still pretended to have some misgivings, nevertheless, "'but asked, as if somewhat impressed, "'Where must I go to see him?' "'Up Willow Creek Way,' said Murdoch indefinitely. "'Where's that?' nearly a dozen miles from here. Is there a train? You can do better than take a train. None runs very near the place, nor could you find it alone. What do you mean by better? Chick demanded. I have the touring car that I came down in this morning, said Murdoch. I'm going to take Janet up there. You can ride with us. Say, is this on the level? asked Chick, frowning if not i'll blow the head off of some one murdock laughed you mean my head of course said he but you'll have no cause to do so kennedy on my word i'm giving it to you dead straight and you'll take no risk in going with me that settles it chick declared abruptly i'll go where's your car in the next street come on then and Wait, Murdoch interrupted. We must wait for Janet. I'm ready, Jeff. All but my hat, she cried, rising. Put it on, then, and we'll be off. Chick waited, still with ominous and doubtful mien. They left the hotel five minutes later, however, and Murdoch led the way to the waiting car. Chick hesitated again when he saw the chauffeur and another man in the conveyance. But Murdoch said quickly, in a confidential way, That's only my chauffeur and one of the gang. You might do worse, Kennedy, than to join us. That would hit me all right, Chick said quickly. It could be arranged, I think. Go on, then. I'm with you. Murdoch introduced him to the two men, Dick Bryan and Lake McGee, both in disguise. Chick recognized both, but did not betray it. He shook hands with them, then took a seat in the tonneau, with Brian and Murdoch on either side of him, Janet riding in front with the chauffeur. Chick knew precisely what he was up against, and he went against it willingly. Murdoch thought he knew also, but the game was deeper than he so much as suspected. It was eleven o'clock when the touring car sped out of Shelby a quarter hour later it passed through the miserable settlement known as benton corners the scene of previous arrests by the carters and its course then lay north as chick was expecting others had passed that way since morning however several others and then were waiting miles beyond to know the direction taken by this car at the only crossroad they had travelled through the woods and were waiting in the woods when chick had ridden another mile however Reaching a desolate part of the wooded foothills, the expected occurred. He felt Murdoch suddenly seize his arm with a vise-like grip, and a revolver was thrust under his nose. Now, Kennedy, you sit quiet, he cried. You move a finger and you'll get all that's coming to you. What's this? snarled Chick, shrinking. You don't mean... I mean what I say, blast you, Murdoch fiercely interrupted. I've known you from the first. You are Chick Carter, the detective, and we're going to land you with your running mate. Get a rope on him, Brian. Lend a hand here, Link, and make him fast. I'll send a bullet through him if he shows fight, and that will end him. Be quick about it. The rascals needed no second bidding, but their task did not prove difficult, for this was precisely what Chick had been expecting, and he offered no resistance though he met their threatening remarks with predictions at which the ruffians only laughed and sneered half an hour later the car swerved out of the woodland road and entered a clearing it surrounded an isolated miserable old house with a stable and numerous tumble-down outbuildings the home of two members of the bandit gang solomon mauler and his brother chick carter then bound hand and foot sized up the miserable place but appeared to have no interest in its surroundings. End of Chapter Eight. Read by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona, November ninth, thousand twenty-one. Chapter Nine of A Fatal Message. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. A Fatal Message by Nicholas Carter Chapter 9 The Result of the Ruse It was in the miserable place, in part described, that Nick Carter awoke to a realization that something unexpected had befallen him. Returning consciousness brought a sense of cramped limbs and bruised muscles, the results of the blows he had received, and the violence of his fall from the moving train, when Saul Muller rudely rolled him from the express car. The effect of all this was to leave Nick unconscious for several hours, how many he hardly knew when he finally revived. He found himself lying on the floor of a stall in a miserable stable, bound hand and foot in a way that precluded liberating himself. He was sore, stiff, and scarce able to stir, but he could use his eyes and ears "'and his brain soon became cleared of the cobwebs. "'He could hear the movements of horses in the near stalls. "'He could see the sunlight through chinks in the walls of the old building. "'He knew that day had dawned, if not already well spent, "'for the early songs of birds in the trees "'through which he could hear the sweep of the wind had ceased, "'and he reasoned that the morning was far advanced. "'All this was confirmed a little later,' "'when the steps of approaching men fell upon his ears "'and the broad door of the stable swung open on its rusty hinges. "'A blaze of sunlight was shed into the dismal building. Two men strode in and around to the stall in which the detective was lying. "'They were Saul Muller, who had impersonated Katie, "'and his brother, Zeke Muller. "'Why they dwelt alone in that desolate region "'and how they earned their living was a mystery to many.' but there were hints at Moonshine Whiskey. I reckon he's still in dreamland, Zeke, Sawmuller was saying when they approached. He was hardly breathing half an hour ago when I fed the nags. Maybe he'll croak on our hands and save us the trouble of... No, blast him. Here he is with eyes wide open. His head's like a hickory nut. So you're not going to croak without help, eh? The last was added when the two ruffians appeared in the entrance to the stall, both halting to glare down at the prostrate detective. Nick Carter gazed up at them, pale and bruised, but his eyes had lost none of their confidence and severe austerity. It's no fault of yours, Muller, that I am still in the land of the living, he sternly answered. You bet it ain't, growled Saul, with expressive nods. You'd have been done brown and planted deep, barring a kick came from when we have to hear to. He ain't taking chances of a rope. The coin is all he's out for. We've got it, too, put in Zeke, with a villainous leer. We got it in spite of you. Make sure you hang on to it, then, Nick coldly advised. You can bet your boots on that. We'll soon have it planted where no infernal New York dick will find it. "'Don't be so sure of it. "'You may slip a cog.' "'No slips for us,' said Saul confidently. "'You ought to know that, Carter.' "'I'm not tellin' all I know.' "'They did a fat job who brought you down here to corral fellows,' Muller went on derisively. "'We're too slick for any city guy of your cut. "'Why, I near laughed in your ugly mug "'when you boarded that express car "'and shoved a letter from Burdick under my nose.' "'You did, eh? "'And then you started in to tell me who you was "'and all about the job you were out to queer. "'Oh, my, but that was rich,' cried the ruffian, "'with a burst of coarse laughter "'in which his low-browed brother joined. "'Yes, very rich,' Nick allowed. "'And then you pulled out a gun "'and wanted to know was I game,' cried the rascal, "'shaking with evil mirth. "'You shoved the gun right in my hand,' "'and as much as told me to hold you up. "'I did it all right, Carter, and we got you, "'as we're going to get those two duffers who've been helping you. "'Unless they contrive to get you, you miscreant,' Nick retorted, frowning. "'Don't you bank on that,' cried Muller, with a snort and sneer. "'We'll have both of them by this time tomorrow. "'We'll wipe you off the earth, all of you, and—' "'By thunder, Zeke—' That must be Murdoch already. Let's have a look. The chugging of the laboring touring car, which was at that moment entering the clearing, had fallen upon the ears of all. Saul and Zeke Muller rushed out of the stable and uttered a series of triumphant yells when they saw that laden car and the powerless captive it contained. It swept around the yard back of the house and stopped nearly in front of the stable jake hanlon came running from the house at the same moment while murdoch leaped out of the car and cried hold your tongue sol your yelling would wake the dead they'll soon be dead ends here to wake all right sol shouted so you got the other one eh one of them and that leaves only one we'll get him too a little later snapped murdoch lend a hand to bring him into the stable we must get rid of both before dark we'll do that all right swing round brian and back in the car after they've got him out murdock continued to command it might be seen and known by chance get it under cover i don't want it suspected that i am in this business with you fellows that would queer us for fair you're booked to be queered all right thought chick while three of the ruffians were hastening to lift him from the car and bear him into the stable. His anticipations were realized very much sooner, even than he expected. Of the six ruffians comprising the gang, five of them were flocking into the small stable, three bearing the bound form of the detective. Only Brian remained outside, and he fell to turning the car, in which Janet Payson still was seated not one among them had any apprehension of immediate danger other figures were approaching however those of half a score of men patsy garvin among them they were stealing as noiselessly as shadows from the woods and shrubbery back of the stable which they rapidly approached with ranks dividing to pass around both sides of it every man was armed with a rifle or a shotgun save patsy garvin and he carried a revolver in each hand as now may be inferred chick carter's ruse had been to place himself in the hands of janet payson and the man known to be her confederate knowing that they would take him to the headquarters of the gang and in the meantime to have patsy so stationed with assistance north of benton corners that the subsequent course of the rascals could be stealthily followed as a matter of fact however Patsy had seen the car containing Murdoch, Brian, and McGee, two of whom he recognized, when it went through Benton Corners on its way to Shelby. The plans already laid with Chick told him what would follow, beyond any reasonable doubt, and he at once set about tracing the tracks of the touring car in the direction from which it had come. This, of course, brought him and his companions to the Muller place less than ten minutes before chick was brought there and all hands were concealed scarce thirty feet back of the stable at that time the noise within had not abated when they came around both front corners of the stable half a score of constables and officers from shelby but the voice of patsy garvin then rang like a trumpet over other sounds now boys get them he shouted leading away some of you look after that fellow in the car We've got those in the stable cornered like rats. There were yells of dismay from within before the last was said, and a rush of five crooks toward the open door. Not a man among them ventured over its threshold, however, or so much as drew a weapon in self-defense. The scene that met their gaze was enough to have daunted any gang of desperadoes, For they found themselves confronted with half a score of leveled weapons in the hands of as many determined men and not one among them but knew that an aggressive move meant death it followed therefore that the arrest of the entire gang was an easy task all were in irons in less than five minutes and long before dark they occupied cells in the shelby county jail the money stolen from the express car was found in the cellar of the house and later in the day was restored to the railway company upon returning to the shelby house with nick and patsy all elated over their good work chick found a telegram awaiting him from lieutenant lang it told him that dan katy the missing express car man had been found confined in janet payson's flat in philadelphia in charge of another confederate who had been arrested it then appeared that katy had been on friendly terms with the woman and with murdoch and that he had carelessly confided the fact that he was to carry a costly money package to Shelby on the night in question. This led to Murdoch's plot with his confederates, all having been awaiting the opportunity to commit the car robbery in the manner described, and Katie was lured to the flat in the early part of the day and overcome, saw Muller cleverly playing the part of his substitute. This was rendered all the more feasible because of the fact that Murdoch was one of the old railway hands, discharged for evil habits, and he was thoroughly familiar with all of the details essential to such a plot. "'It will teach Katie a lesson,' Nick remarked to Chick and Patsy that evening, as they sat smoking in their suite in the hotel. He'll select his companions more carefully in the future. As for Murdoch and the gang, well—' It now is up to them to pay the price. End of chapter nine read by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona, november ninth, twenty twenty one. End of a fatal message by Nicholas Carter